Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Who pays? President Trump talks withholding funding from the UN's health body. Wuhan waking. Tens of thousands leave the city after two months of lockdown and responding to treatment. The latest on UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers across the globe. As always, we hope you and your loved ones are healthy and staying safe during these challenging times. The latest from here in the United States is that COVID-19 cases are approaching 400,000. That follows the deadliest day here on record. However, the overall trend of new cases may be flattening in many countries, and Norway became the fourth nation following Austria, Denmark and the Czech Republic to announce gradual levels of reopening. The key here, as we keep discussing on the show, finding that balance between the science and the stimulus in getting global economies up and running, lowering the level of lockdowns. For now, though, of course, plenty of uncertainties remain. U.S. market action, I think, reflects that too. Futures are higher at this moment, but stocks gave up some 4% gains yesterday, late on in the session. Europe at this moment under some pressure. Asia stocks, as you can see, they're closing mixed as well. In terms of stimulus, Eurozone finance ministers failed to agree on emergency aid packages despite all night talks. They'll continue to work on that. Meanwhile, there's rising hopes here in the United States that Congress can agree a further $250 billion of loans for small and medium-sized businesses. In my view, this program should be limitless. Congress needs to remove the fear that for many viable businesses, they could miss the cash. Owners then may make different decisions shorter term if the money comes eventually, and that could ultimately save jobs. There's likely to be a battle in Congress, even just getting that agreed, I think. JP Morgan believes a further 7 million people signed on for jobless benefits in just the last week alone. Help can't come soon enough. On to the drivers. President Trump is threatening to withhold funds from the World Health Organization in retaliation for, in his words, missing the call on the coronavirus outbreak. The president criticized the World Health Organization for not supporting his initial travel restrictions with China. We're going to put a hold on money spent to the WHO. We're going to put a very powerful hold on it, and we're going to see. The president later seemed to soften his comments on that front. Follow up on that. So is the time to freeze funding to the WHO during a pandemic? No, maybe not. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but we're going to look at it. You did say that. We give a tremendous... No, I didn't. I said we're going to look at it. We're going to investigate it. We're going to look at it. But we will look at ending funding. 
Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, I think huge questions do have to be asked about the response in many cases, whether it's individual nations or the World Health Organization. But cutting funding during a pandemic, not the right solution, even when you're trying to raise money domestically to support yeah, your people. And I think that whole episode with the president shows sort of three Trump patterns. One, the pattern mm -hmm. of saying something and then saying, no, I didn't say that. I, I said I was going to look at that. He says that he's done that many, many times. The other is his need for a scapegoat, right, to find somebody else to blame for what our polling this morning shows that uh, a majority of Americans uh, don't think the United States has been doing a good job. The federal government has been doing a good job to slow the spread. And, and also his distrust of global institutions, right? I think those three things are at play here. Yeah, and we, we on this show also have some skepticism at times of global institution responses too. But he did talk about something critical, and I know it's very important to you and I, which was how indeed we try and get economies, including the United States, in some form back up and running. Listen to what the president had to say about that. Well, I'd love to open with a big bang, one beautiful country and just open. But... Uh, it's very possible, you know, there are some areas that are not affected very much. You know, we're looking at two concepts. We're looking at the concept where you open up sections, and we're also looking at the concept where you open up everything. Logistics and science aside, which are big suppositions here, Christine, that and the strength of that bang, or the big bang that he's talking about, is going to come down to providing money as soon as possible to individuals and to businesses in the United yep. States. And that's slow in coming. It really is. And, you know, there's new numbers this morning um, that show that a third of renters in April uh, didn't pay their rent. You know, they, usually you get a little bit of leeway until maybe April 5th. It is now April 8th. And a third of renters did not pay their rent. And the reason is they're waiting for their jobless benefits. They can't get through to the state unemployment office. We saw these long lines in Florida of people actually told to wait in line for a paper jobless claims uh, application because the, the systems were down. And you have small, small businesses who are clamoring for small business uh, relief and they're having trouble getting their hands on the money, too. Even as Washington is promising maybe new money after this, it's just we just are in this log jam, right, Julia, where the, the money has been promised. It's there. It almost seems limitless when you talk about the Fed backstopping everything, but it's just not in people's hands yet. Yeah, it's just not yet. Can't come soon enough. Christine Reigns, yeah. thank you so much for that. Thank you. Now to China. The lockdown in Wuhan, the original epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, has finally been lifted to celebration, but also tens of thousands of people leaving the city after more than two months of complete lockdown. David Culver has the details. Counting down the moment like the start of a new year, Chinese media documenting a dramatic midnight reopening of Wuhan. Officials rushing to push aside highway barriers, traffic flowing once again. For 76 days, this city, with a population larger than New York City, was walled off from the rest of mainland China. Today, the original epicenter of the novel coronavirus, no longer on lockdown. A water cannon salute for the first commercial aircraft returning to Wuhan's airport. Inside the city train stations, an unusual sight, crowds of people, passengers going through security and screenings, only those with a clean bill of health allowed to leave. Railway officials say about 55,000 tickets were sold for outbound travel on Wednesday alone. Row after row of trains were at the ready. Just before the January 23rd lockdown took effect, CNN traveled to Wuhan. 
We took you to the suspected source of the outbreak, the seafood market. We met locals who, like us, were unaware of the unprecedented lockdown that loomed. Behind me, this is one of a few hospitals here. In a few hours after filing our report, we, like so many here, got word of plans to shut down Wuhan. We then boarded a train back to Beijing to begin our quarantine, but relied on video chats to keep in touch with those inside the lockdown, like Iris Yu, stuck in her apartment for more than two months. As of Wednesday morning, she was on board a train fully protected, headed to southern China. After eating straight A's in quarantine, I finally came out today. Now I'm on the train to Shenzhen now. As for the Wuhan she's leaving behind? No, it is not uh, yet fully operational, but it indeed is recovering. Even officials caution, this is far from back to normal. We receive daily text messages from the government saying, hey, like, don't be complacent, you know, be cognizant that there may be a second wave. A possible second wave. It's for that reason that Wuhan residents like American Christopher Suzanne are not allowed to roam freely within the city. Neighborhood committees are monitoring people as they enter and leave their homes and, if necessary, enforcing quarantine. So I have a special ticket. Um, it's a red piece of paper. It allows me outside for two hours per day, um, but only one person per family per day, two hours. So you know, my wife, she doesn't go outside. She's still, uh, you know, scared. While some stores are back open, other businesses will stay closed, unable to weather the economic pressures of the harsh shutdown. Following subdued Lunar New Year celebrations in late January, state media marking this moment as a new beginning of sorts. But the unknowns linger over a city still haunted by this devastating virus. And uh, David Colvert joins us now. What a journey for these people. What a journey for you too, David. I believe that's 76 days ago. Uh, my two takeaways, one, the testing right. of people leaving here, but, but also this is nothing like normal. It's early days, but it's not normal. That's right, Julian. I, I think I would characterize this more as a trial period because the Chinese government is clearly going to have to be experimenting a little bit to see as you resume life and you ease these lockdown restrictions, people are starting to move. Obviously, within Wuhan, they're now allowed to leave. And to your point on testing, you're going to make sure that all those individuals are uh, have a green QR code, as we call it here. We've got these little QR codes on our phone that allow us to get on and, and essentially say that we've got a clean slate of health and that we haven't been exposed to the virus. I mean, that's that's how they're doing this. Uh, you know, obviously it brings up privacy concerns, too. But at the same time, there is an uneasiness within uh, many of the homes in Wuhan, folks that we've been in touch with for those 76 days who say, you know, even if these restrictions are being eased, and even if this is being portrayed as a celebratory moment, they're not too sure that it's right right now this moment to breathe easy. You know, they, they think perhaps that uh, things could resurface and this virus could come back. And so that's why I think there's a hesitation, but there's also, to the government's point, an opportunity to seize on that hesitation and allow some to remain in their homes for a good while, even if on their own accord, uh, before really resuming things as a whole. So it, it's going to be this moment that we're seeing that's uh, really kind of navigating uncharted waters and, and mm. trying to test to see if the, the control really is in the, the hands of the government here.
we're just at the beginning of a new journey. I just want to ask you quickly, David, about the QR code. Do you have to have had a test then in order to get the QR code on your mobile? And, and what happens if you don't have one of those? You can't travel. No, it's based on jurisdiction. So here in Shanghai, they have their own type of QR code. In Wuhan, right. they have a separate one. In other places, it works that way. You don't have to be tested. I've not been tested, but even as foreigners, we have them here. And it's our access to hotels, to certain restaurants, to shopping malls. It's your really golden key. Yeah, it's the golden key. David, you have done such an incredible job of keeping us informed over the last few months. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Yeah. David Culver, there. Right, now to start warning, just released by the World Trade Organization. It says trade this year could fall by nearly a third, which would be worse than during the global financial crisis. Claire Sebastian has more. Claire, when I saw the headline on this, I, I have to say, I thought, is that all? But also, what were they saying about the potential timing for a recovery here? Because that's the key unknown, I think, for all of us. Yeah, Julia, the numbers in the words of the WTO Director General, they are pretty ugly. I want to give you a comparison because the range here is between 30 and 13 rather and 32 percent decline in 2020. Bear in mind the drop that we saw in 2009 after the uh, global financial crisis was 12.2 percent, which at that point was the biggest drop in 70 years. So this, even at the most optimistic scenario, is set to be bigger than that. But they do say there will be a rebound in 2021. I think we can show you a chart uh, that has the, the most optimistic and the most pessimistic scenario. And, and in both cases, they expect a rebound. But it just depends, they say, on the duration of the outbreak and the effectiveness of the policy responses, how deep the fall will be and how, deep, how steep the rebound and whether we get anywhere close to the previous trend line to, to, to reverse those losses. So they say, uh, Julia, that uh, North America and Asia will be the hardest hit sector. Uh, with complex supply chains like electronics will feel it the most and services which are not included in this number will also take a big hit this is uncharted water as david culver was just saying things like travel restrictions restrictions on movement social distancing are all presenting challenges that we did not see during the global financial crisis and all of that is set to affect trade yeah public confidence first and foremost and that brings us right back to the science claire sebastian thank you so much for that update there to the UK now, and the British Prime Minister has spent a second night in intensive care. Boris Johnson is in a stable condition, and his spokesman says he's responding to treatment as he continues to battle coronavirus symptoms. Mac Foster joins us now from St Thomas Hospital in London. Max, great to have you with us. Um, obviously, this ongoing balance between privacy for, for the Prime Minister, but obviously the public's need to know. Responding to treatment, though, sounds good. Yeah, it's very positive, isn't it? He's getting mm. better. That effectively means, according to the medics that we've been speaking to, but obviously they're very cautious. Uh, the reason for that being that he's still being kept in intensive care, uh, but he's stable and responding to treatment. I don't think at this point you could look for anything better. That's what I'm being told, at least. Uh, he continues to be cared for uh, in intensive care, according to Downing Street, and he's in good spirits. So that's good. But then he always is, isn't he, Julia? That's his great quality. And we were told going into this that psychology is very important in terms of that uh, recovery process for these virus victims, because it's about getting yourself breathing properly again and you need to have a positive mentality and he's got that and I think it's working in his favour. Irrepressible is the word I think that comes to mind here Max. Um, one of the real challenges of, of this illness is the distance 
from loved ones because you have to protect those around people, never mind the social distancing. What do we hear about uh, Carrie Simmons? One, how she's dealing with this and her health, of course. This is the Prime Minister's partner. Yeah, absolutely. And she's pregnant. And, uh, you know, they only recently got engaged. So very difficult for uh, both of them. And they're both in confinement, effectively. Uh, it was interesting to see the Queen uh, sending a message um, uh, to the Johnsons, as they will be, uh, but sending a message to Carrie at uh, Downing Street. So that was, uh, she's very much part of this story. And it's interesting to see the coverage, Julia, here. You wouldn't have seen the British newspapers, uh, but the, a lot of them are very much getting behind Boris Johnson on this, saying, he put his health uh, on the line for his duty for the country and people need to be doing the same so stick to these isolation rules slightly difficult i have to say because some of the scientists government scientists are saying uh, they're getting more positive about the numbers here uh, we could be reaching the peak but they need more data to confirm that uh, as you can see great weather in the uk they were very worried going into the weekend that people will use that as an excuse to go back out but i have to say at the moment the streets are pretty clear very eerie here i have to say at the moment but that's good news yes absolutely However nice the weather, stay at home. Fingers crossed it's working. Max Foster, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break here, but still to come on First Move, Nobel laureate Paul Krugman on what he calls the economic corona coma. We discuss the patient, the cure, and the potential long-term damage. And decontaminate and reuse the Ohio-based company with a fix for the critical shortage, shortage of medical masks. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. We're counting down to the market open that looks like it's going to be positive this morning. There you can see it uh, just above 1.3% uh, across the board. Though the major markets gave back gains of 4% late in the session yesterday to end up closing pretty much flat. Remember, the only thing I promise you again, as I say, cautiousness and volatility. Earnings season, though, also begins next week, and that will likely be another reality check regarding the economic cost of the mass shutdown that we've seen, even as nations around the world begin to at least have the conversation about some form of phased reopening. Alicia Levine is the chief strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management, and she joins us now. Alicia, great to see you, and great to see you looking so well. One of the key questions I keep getting from people is, have we seen the worst for the stock market? We don't yet have a handle on the science, but, oh boy, if we had unprecedented levels of stimulus. Where are we? Look, that's, that's the great question. The, I think the answer has to be divided into two parts. And Julia, mm. it is great to see you during these times. Um, look, if the shutdown is essentially no more than six to eight weeks, then the amount of stimulus that has been pumped into the global economy and in the U.S. should be sufficient to get us to the other side of this giant air pocket that we're experiencing right now. So... With, with the Fed stimulus, with the monetary stimulus and the fiscal stimulus, that really got rid of the left tail risk of some of the contagion issues that we were starting to see in credit markets. And that's really why you saw the market rally over the last couple of weeks. The issue is the following. As you point out, the science is really unclear. And this started with science and it's going to end with science. And if science dictates that we cannot open the economies you know, by the end of May, let's say, 
then you're really going to see another leg downward because the market is essentially pricing in that we have a terrible deep hole here, unprecedented, but that we come out on the other side and start to re regrow again by the fourth quarter. And if that's the case, then we have seen the bottom in the market. I mean, there's so much uncertainty to that point. You've said that the stimulus that we've seen has effectively cushioned us for the next six weeks. If we end up in a situation where even if we start to reopen at that point, it's staggered, it, it's a slow process simply because it has to be, because we have to be very cautious here. Does the damage to the economy, to jobs, uh, continue to worsen and perhaps speed up due to the time required? Well, it's, it, it's clear that there's not going to be an all clear signal. There will not be. And there will only be an all clear signal when we have a vaccine. And as you know, that's 12 to 18 months away. And none of our economies can afford to wait that long, let's face it. So it will be a staggered and phased reopening. And what I worry about is that the labor market here in the US, you know, you've had 10 million people file for unemployment claims and what that means is that they're no longer attached to their employer. So when you, and that's just for two weeks. And I'll remind you that during the recovery of the, um, from 2009 to 2010 for the next decade, US created 20 million jobs. So we've essentially lost half of that in two weeks. It's just a staggering number. When people are unattached to their employer, if you reopen the economy, you don't get an immediate snapback, right? Because they're no longer attached to the employer or to their jobs. And so there is some dispersion that happens. And that's really what we have to fear. The, the duration of this is really the problem, not the death so much, it's the duration. Yeah, it's, it's one of the other challenges here is the speed of the decline that we saw, to your point, the speed of the, the job rises that we've seen. If we go back to history, and I'm not sure how much it helps us at all, quite frankly, it takes months for a stock market to find its feet, to, to find the floor and then regain confidence and move higher. Is history in any way helpful to what we're seeing here, given all the uncertainty that you just mentioned? And what's your advice to investors? So history is important because you need some sort of framework for mm. analyzing what to do today, right? What do I do with fresh capital today? So the analysis that we have done shows that when markets drop 25% and you enter a bear market and you have a recession, so the two together, a market drop and a recession, it can sometimes take longer than 24 months to actually recover to the old highs and even have any positive move at all because there's essentially a price finding mechanism that the market is engaged in. And with the heightened uncertainty, with the VIX still remaining in the mid 40s, it tells you that the market is not completely certain about where we're going here. So. All that means is that if you have at least a two to five year time horizon, this is an excellent opportunity to start building positions and finding companies that you think will come out on the other side of this. This is not an index call. This is an individual company call, strong balance sheets, remaining cash flow. Who's going to be surviving and thriving on the other side of this? This is the time to do it as long as you have a longer time horizon. 
Yeah, it's a great point, Alicia. Very quickly, does earnings season, because that's going to begin next week, does that give us more information or does that just confirm the lack of certainty that we know we have at this moment? So 2020 and 2021 earnings are a black hole. Yeah. The published estimates today are, it's not just that they're stale, they're simply not believable. And, you know, I've never actually seen stocks go up when companies project declining earnings, declining flash cash flow and declining profitability. So it will be a difficult situation. I think the best we can assume for this year is that earnings are down 25% at best. And that, that assumes a V-shaped recovery and at worst probably get cut in half to about you know, $89, a share, $85 a share. And, you know, it, it, on the S&P. And if that's the case, there w- could be another leg downward. But ultimately, markets are forward-looking discounting machines. And so you want to look at what does it look like for the next three years? Does it take us three years to recover to that 165 level in the S&P? If that's the case, then this is an okay time to start building positions. But you shouldn't think that you know the all clear is given just because first quarter earnings came in not as bad as expected yeah cautious be cautious and think of your time horizon alicia great to have you with us thank you so much stay safe please and we'll talk to you again soon thank- Alicia Lillian Thanks, there Julia, from BMY, nice Mellon Investment Management and beautiful children, of course, over your shoulder there too. Stay with us. We're back after this. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. We've got to US stocks markets up and running this Wednesday. As expected, a higher open following yesterday's initial gains and then a flat finish, as we've described. The bottom line is, as Alicia Levine was mentioning there, we remain pretty much in the dark about the severity of the health crisis and how we reopen economies after it. And I think yesterday's volatile markets reflect that. Tomorrow's US jobs data will be key. All signs are pointing to another sharp spike in those claiming for jobless benefits, perhaps even worse than last week's record rise of 6.6 million people claiming for help. JP Morgan says 7 million people in the past week may have claimed and asked for help. The owner of TJ Maxx says it will furlough most of its US workforce. Tesla is cutting pay for all workers and furloughing hourly workers. And airline group AI, AATA says the airline body AATA says that the AATA says 25 million jobs across the world are at risk in that industry. We're seeing green arrows for oil on the eve of tomorrow's OPEC plus meeting. Markets are hoping for production cuts of some 10 million barrels a day. Now, as millions of Americans lose their jobs every week, the unemployment rate is expected to skyrocket in the world's largest economy. It already has. Bank of America forecasts tomorrow's weekly jobless claims could reach six and a half million people. It's time to act. Princeton University professor and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman. Professor Paul Krugman joins us now. He's also 2008 Nobel laureate and he's the author of the book, Arguing with Zombies economics, politics, and the fight for a better future. Professor Paul Krugman, sir, great to have you with us on the show. 
We'll talk about who the zombies are in a second, uh, quite frankly, but let's start just micro with the US economy. You've said many times we're underestimating the, the damage that we're seeing, even in the short term. How high do you think the unemployment could get? Oh, it's quite easy. By the way, I should say uh, I'm no longer at Princeton. I'm at the City University of New York. Ah, my school my will be unhappy with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're. Uh, it's probably it, we can quite easily get over 20 percent unemployment. Uh, the, we've we've lost at at a guess at least 15 million jobs just in the last three weeks and. Uh, uh, the unemployment rate, best estimates suggest that as of a few days ago, it was already probably 13, 14 percent and rising. So this is this is a uh, the best guess I can make is that we're looking at a slump that's three to five times as deep as the Great Recession of uh, 2007 to 2009. And that raised the unemployment rate by five percentage points. Um, this one is going to be much, much worse than that, at least initially. The St. Louis Fed president told us a couple of weeks ago that he could envisage as high as 30 percent unemployment. Could we yeah, see it's that? Not, it's not unreasonable. Mm. Sorry? Yes, it's, I mean, we're, we're, we've shut down something like, uh, again, we shut down 25 or 30 percent of the economy. Uh, so uh, that can lead to some pretty uh, awesomely uh, uh, huge unemployment numbers. The trouble is where, you know, this is just moving uh, all of our economic data are designed to deal with with movements that may be large over the course of a month, but we're not used to seeing a full scale, uh, you know, the deepest recession, the, the deepest decline anyway, since since basically ever uh, over the course of weeks. So everything's moving on COVID time, uh, but it does look extremely severe. I mean, the point that the I think the White House, the administration would make is this shows that the shutdown is working and why they've put the measures in place to get cash to people, to get cash to businesses, to try and stem some of the job losses. What do you make of the plan that they've announced? Admittedly, we're, we're seeing delays in getting the money to people, but is right. more money required? Yes, more money is required. The, um, the, the CARES Act uh, that, that was passed already it seems like uh, months ago but actually just just a little over a week ago um, is better than I, I expected it actually uh, you know what we need right now the, the economy is going through I've been saying it's the it's sort of the economic version of a medically induced coma where you deliberately shut down some brain functions in order to give the patient a chance to heal and uh, um, and the most urgent thing it, under those circumstances is not stimulus but relief. You need to give, provide people with money to tide them over. Um, and the bill, for the most part, there are some dubious parts of it, but for the most part, it was on expanded unemployment benefits, uh, uh, lending to small businesses that can be converted into grants if they use the money to maintain payrolls. Um, what's absent from the bill, there's two things. Uh, one is there's not remotely enough aid to state and local governments which are on the front line here, have to balance their budgets and are suffering terribly from the crisis. Um, the other thing is that we are falling down really badly on the implementation. I mean, we have state unemployment offices. This, you know, we're, we're running this enhanced program supposedly through the states and the state unemployment offices can't keep up with the, with the new claims even before the extra money starts to flow. Um, and uh, most indications are that the small business lending is off to a very rocky start as well. So basically, we, we did, on paper, we did a lot of the right things, but not enough of them. Uh, in practice, 
we haven't provided much relief. People are already, you know, exhausting food banks very quickly. So it, it's a lot of harsh, but we, uh, assuming that this money starts to flow, we still have some big holes to fill. And, and uh, yet, uh, even though the numbers look huge, in fact, we need another big one. How big? Well, I mean, uh, what we're seeing from House Democrats right now is 500 billion, which is, if anything, I think, less than we're eventually going to need. But there's it's uh, there's is a combination of more small business lending, but also um, extra money for states, extra money for hospitals, which are really both crucial areas. Um, I'm concerned uh, that the uh, the stuff that's good, the unemployment benefits, it's, that's actually, a, it's a very good, if it, the money can actually get delivered, it's actually a very yeah. good thing. Um, but it expires after four months. And there's uh, a lot of reason to believe this is going to go on uh, for, for longer than that. The, uh, the forgivable um, business, small business loans, it's only eight weeks. So uh, I don't think the legislation so far addresses there's the one big hole is the is state and local governments. Um, and the other big problem is duration. Uh, yeah. you know, anybody's guess when the economy really restarts. I'll ask you that. But to your exact point, what I'm hearing is that small businesses are saying, look, I, I can only get relief on two months of payroll my workers would be right. better off taking four months of unemployment benefit, which I think Congress recognizes perhaps is quite challenged. But obviously, there's a delay in getting that money out to people. How quickly, assuming that money flows in the next couple of weeks, can we bring the unemployment rate down once we That's start to really restart the economy? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, this is mostly a question for the epidemiologists. I mean, this is, uh, um, for what it's worth, there's an overwhelming consensus among economists that you don't, that GDP is not the is not the goal here. That that uh, in fact, even in terms of GDP over a slightly longer period, much better to uh, to wait until you've really got this under control. If we look at some of the countries that have been relatively successful at containing this, there are some ominous signs. Places like Singapore that seem to have done a really good job and started to say, okay, people can start to go back to work. Then they started to see a second wave of infections. And so it's really, we're probably quite a few months from being able to go into, you know, we may be able to liberalize a few things, but a full restart of the economy is not uh, indicated right now. No, I my view, and I'm hearing it from more and more people, is that billions, as in hundreds of billions of dollars, needs to be pumped into medical science to try and come up with right. more tests, to come up with uh, immunology tests to work out who's actually got some level of immunity to this. But, Professor Krugman, I want to ask you something about a comment that you've made. And you said, look, I'm a patriot. I'm very proud of the of the United States, of, of what we've achieved over a number of years, although at the same time this has become the land of denial and death because the support infrastructure to tackle economic weakness is not there. What must change after this and will it? Well, yes. Uh, one thing is that I think we need to say that in cases of national emergency, the response needs to be federal. Um, and you know, we're all talking about the medical equipment thing, where the, the, the current administration has insistently refused to, to take charge and take responsibility for delivering uh, protective equipment, ventilators, and all of that, which is crazy. This is, if, if this is anything like a war, which in some ways it is, then you always nationalize the crucial uh, 
weapons of war, which in this case is, is masks and ventilators and all of that. Um, but we also, uh, I've been looking at the emergency unemployment benefits. Uh, you know, our neighbors to the north uh, have also got an emergency unemployment benefits program. Um, theirs is being administered at a national level. Uh, they set up a, a website, a, a, a free call-in line, and people are getting their benefits very, very quickly in Canada. We are running it through state offices, which have been massively neglected. Uh, in some cases, the states, uh, Florida, actually deliberately set up its system to make it hard to collect unemployment benefits. They, they wanted to discourage people from seeking benefits, and now suddenly they, they're completely overwhelmed and and, uh, and are you know, on, nobody can get through, uh, but even you know even New Jersey, uh, which is a blue state, has been neglecting the governmental infrastructure. I mean, there's a desperate search uh, in New Jersey now for COBOL programmers. You know, nobody knows that. Nobody on nobody younger than me knows knows how to program in COBOL. But it turns out that we've got a 40 year old computer system running in the unemployment office. So that's telling us that uh, we should we should uh, be prepared. We we should have national. You know, a, a comprehensive system of national health insurance doesn't have to be single payer, but something that's comprehensive. Um, we should have national response when we're delivering emergency benefits. And this combination of um, shortchanging, nickel and diming, and then uh, uh, refusing to federalize things that are national issues is, is really deadly. Got to take ownership and responsibility in a crisis. Professor Paul Krugman. Yeah. Fantastic to have you with us, Professor of Economics there at the Graduate Centre at City University of New York. I got it right the second time, so we'll get you That's back right. soon. That's Thank you. Okay, Thank you. You too. All right, we're going to take a break. Still to come on First Move, we need more specialist masks and we need them now. But manufacturers of the N95 respirators say this takes time. We speak to the CEO of a company behind a system that makes them reusable. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. government is looking to buy 600 million vital N95 masks, but even that may be nowhere near enough. Ramping up the production could take months, so the United States is relying on imports too. But now there's an additional way, decontaminating those N95 masks already in use. U.S. regulators recently approved a mobile system created by research and development company Battelle that does just that. Luis Fonteo is the president and CEO of the company, and he joins us via Skype. So fantastic to have you with us. This is some incredible innovation in times of crisis. Talk to me about where the idea came from and how quickly, because the speed here is crucial, you managed to get this process up and running. Well, thank you, Julie, and good morning. Uh, yeah, it's really been remarkable. Uh, we yeah. actually had one of our engineers um, had this idea. They remembered a study that we had done five years ago for the FDA. And in that study, we proved that we could re, um, reuse these masks, basically decontaminate them for reuse up to 20 times, with no degradation. Uh, we'd never thought about scaling it before, though. So the idea came up that we could scale this. And literally within nine days, um, our team worked around the clock and actually built out a system of a large ISO container, like you see going, the trucks pulling down the road, um, instrumented and laid out with racks that could hold these masks. Uh, we apply hydrogen, pro uh, hydrogen peroxide in a vaporized form for a certain dwell time and um, get the mask clean. So we had them had a 
system up and running. We were able to create data along with the study data we did before. Uh, got approval from the FDA, I think, 10 days ago now. And I'm very happy to report that we're up and operating in Ohio today, uh, just going online in Seattle and uh, in uh, Stony Brook uh, in Long Island. Uh, and we'll soon be online in Boston in the next few days. I mean, it's incredible. I, I was doing the math there. I think that's 23 days between coming up with the idea and, and finally getting approval. How much of a battle was it going back and forth and back and forth with the, the FDA here in order to get this emergency approval? Because this is key. Well, I, I think uh, first I would accommodate everyone. Uh, this has been a team effort from not yeah. just our team, but the FDA, uh, our local uh, politicians and others have helped because of the emergency. And um, everyone just came together to, to do this as quickly as possible. By the last days of this, uh, we were literally in hourly conversations with the FDA lead, uh, to answering their questions, getting any documentation they were concerned about. Uh, and that's so it's really remarkable. It's really a case of uh, I think it's America. We may not be the best planners in the world, but boy, we are great at responding when emergency comes. And we've proven that over over again in our history. Yes. Yeah, speed of innovation, I think, unparalleled, quite frankly. Um, talk to me about these decontamination systems, because I saw a comment from you saying, look, as a company, we have a strong balance sheet. We're a, a not for profit. We'll figure out the, the financial details later. I know you donated one as well to, to Washington State. Talk me through this. So where we're doing right now is we're really working with our partners to be able to scale this very quickly. Yeah. Uh, right now, we believe we can build about five of these a week starting next week. Within three weeks, we think we can build more than one a day. Uh, the federal government and others are talking to us, uh, working state governments as well. Um, our model to start with this was we would charge hospitals for the actual cleaning of the masks uh, at a rate, and then we would drop that rate as soon as we kind of recovered our capital costs to basically the rate that it costs to clean the masks. With um, some help that could be coming uh, from other sources soon, uh, hopefully we'll be able to provide this service uh, near free or for free to the hospitals. So it's all about speed. It's all about getting things in the country where they need them, uh, see how many of these systems can be deployed. Uh, we're also learning in this process that it takes a while for the hospitals to build their logistics chain up. They spent their whole careers uh, learning how to not do this, learning how to use you know, 12 to 14 of these masks a day, one for each patient, uh, and now to change those processes inside these hospitals, uh, which purposely were always built not to be very flexible because our health's at stake. Uh, we're, we're learning that they've got a lot of work to do on their end to get the supply chain up and running too. So we're doing a lot of work with them in this process as well. Uh, absolutely. And who takes responsibility for at the moment if they don't have the system in place to deliver the mask to you to then to again get them cleaned and, and how are you protecting your employees because this is clearly critical too yes so what we've done is today the hospitals are using their standard couriers to deliver them to us and the bags the masks are double wrapped uh, the pl outside plastic bag or box that are sent to us is wiped down with alcohol to make sure there's no coronavirus on them and shipped to us we're also talking to um, national partners that could speed this process and do this on a much grander scale than we're able to do or an individual hospital and hope to have uh, those places online soon. So our, our goal is to set up regional systems and um, let multiple hospitals um, come into that region because we can clean so many masks at one time. It's fantastic. What a, what a call to action and a response from your whole team. Thank you. Thank you so much and uh, stay in touch, please, because we'd love to hear your progress. The president and CEO of Patel Vesta, stay safe, please. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Right, when we return, Wuhan's airports reopen and among the departing passengers, there have been some very special farewells to show you. Stay with us.
coronavirus moves square and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey has pledged $1 billion to coronavirus relief efforts. It may sound simple, but it gets more complicated. The donation comes in the form of an equity stake in Square. Paul Monica joins me now. Paul, it's still a quarter of his wealth, I believe, but uncomplicate the complications for us. How does this work? Yeah, Dorsey uh, getting a lot of uh, you know praise for his efforts here. About a billion dollars, mostly Square stock, because that's where a big chunk of his wealth comes from, not Twitter. He is going to be donating this to coronavirus relief efforts. And then after that, he says that he wants to continue investing in other uh, charitable uh, you know things like girls' health, universal basic income, education efforts. So this is kind of like the giving pledge of you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, but supersized. So a lot of praise for Jack Dorsey for this extremely charitable uh, donation that he is making at a time where we really need it. Yeah, we really need this kind of response. And uh, that's a monster one, even if it is in the form of stock. There's things you can do with that, even in the short term, to, uh, to leverage that money. Oh, I think we've lost you there, Paul. Great to have you with us, though. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for the update there. The joys of live TV. Now, as we prepare to say goodbye, I want to show you some farewells that took place at an airport in Wuhan today. Over two months ago, medical support staff flew in to help treat an overwhelming number of patients. Now they finally get to go home. These nurses have been pretty much to hell and back, running towards danger instead of away from it. And we thank them all for it. Those images there, breathtaking. And that is happening all around the world. We thank them. Thank you for watching, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.